0: Welcome to Policy PolicyCast, episode 61 for September 12, 2019. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute.
1: Ben-Gurion, I think, was great because he focused on what was truly important. He had a central mission in life, which was end Jewish homelessness after 2,000 years. Not an easy thing that he took on. He was unswerving in his objective, and he was tactically agile in his ability to achieve the objective.
2: Sharon talked about the solitude of the leader. And what he meant by that was, when you face these decisions, you face them alone. All the people who work for you or work with you, yes, you can take their advice, you can take their input, but the burden of decision-making is on you, and you face it alone. That was David Mikovsky and Dennis Ross, co-authors of a new book on Israeli
0: leadership. In the new book, titled, Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny, They profile the careers and legacies of four Israeli Prime Ministers, David Ben-Gurion, Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Rabin, and Ariel Sharon. At a special September 5 book launch event hosted by the Washington Institute, where both David and Dennis are senior fellows, the authors shared insights from their book and recommendations for how American policy can help encourage wise statesmanship in our Israeli ally. We'll hear their remarks after this.
2: This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute.
0: First to speak was David Mikovsky. David is the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and Director of the Project on Arab-Israeli Relations.
1: Why did we write this book? Uh, as Rob noted, I'm- well, Israel's also facing a very fateful choice. And so we thought, let's trace the duties of these people who met the bar of history. These are a kind of, their decisions kind of are a kind of a Middle East Mount Rushmore. Uh, they, they leave legacies behind them. It doesn't mean they were perfect people. It doesn't mean that every decision we agree with, of course, but they've left legacies of achievement uh, that, that do endure. So how did they uh, make their decisions? And what is the, the, the political courage they had to, to confront even long-term allies and making those momentous decisions? So I'm trying to distill, like, what are the lessons? What made these people great? And so, um, each one of these things we could talk forever about. So if there are questions, if I, I'm trying to be as telegraphic as I can, just for purposes of time. Ben Gurion, I think, was great because he focused on what was truly important. He had a central mission in life which was end Jewish homelessness after 2,000 years. Not an easy decision, uh, not an easy thing that he took on. He was unswerving in his objective, and he was tactically agile in his ability to achieve the objective. He had kind of wedded uh, Zionism to Britain until 1939 with the white paper that limited um, and, and really phased out Jewish immigration. And he said, okay, we've got to start all over again, and we're going to start with the United States. He actually lived for 10 weeks here at the Hamilton Hotel, I found out on on uh, on K Street. Um, he w- he just, uh, he got to say, this is the goal, I thought this was the way to achieve it through Britain, now we got to change. He believed that you needed institutions, you want a state, you needed a mindset uh, if you want to link the people with the land. And what I said about immigration, that for him was the oxygen of Zionism, was unrelenting focus. Anyone who wanted to compromise on that issue for him, that was the Rubicon. Uh, that was the red line he would not cross. That's why he breaks from Britain in 1939. His belief was that, um, you know, to, to achieve that, is that, immigration was was central because Zionism. The Jews were a minority at the time, and if they want to be Jewish and democratic, uh, of course, equal rights for all. But they had to have immigration, and he was not willing to compromise on that. He was also. Big, I think, because he understood not just the inside out, but the outside in. How did these world events impact Zionism? He wasn't insular. He wasn't parochial. He was also extremely well-read. I think he had 13 languages. He taught himself Greek while in the Blitz during uh, World War II in London. That's where he also got his sense that the public will sacrifice if they have a leader who could communicate to the public uh, the way Churchill did. He was prescient in this regard in looking at world events. It doesn't mean he succeeded in many ways. You know, it was a, you know he would admit if he was here. I think that he was a failure in the 30s because he saw this as a race, Zionism on one hand, and uh, you know that Hitler was going to take over Europe. He predicted in 33 after he got a hold of Mein Kampf at a Munich train station. He says there's going to be a world war here in a few years. The ground is burning and. Um, That was central to him, and he always said, I have no right to compromise on immigration because all these people are going to be killed in a few years. He didn't sense the enormity. He had no sense of gas chambers or anything like that, of course, but he, and in a certain way, he failed because in the 30s, whatever they could bring, it was not six million did perish, but he understood that world events were greater than anything else, and that, I think, was very important. He also was ahead of the curve in seeing... You know, what's the next challenge? Not just think the moment. He said the Arab states are going to go to war. And he got into a huge fight with the Haganah, the Palmach, which were the, the main defense institutions in the pre-state. He said, you guys are thinking small. You know, there's going to be a war with countries, not with Fadayin, behind rocks. Uh, I want to know who's, who's, who runs tank formations? Who's in an air force? He, he ended up restructuring the whole army, and he favored people who were in World War II in the British Army because he said, you know, they have experience in big formations. He got into a huge fight internally over this, always trying to think, what's the next big thing? By the way, he said to De Gaulle, just in parentheses, in 1960, he said the Soviet Union will collapse in 30 years, and it was 31 years. So he, he you know, he was right. Doesn't mean he was always right. But um, he always looked outside in. He was not afraid of, of taking momentous decision, even when they uh, incurred risk. But once he locked in, country first, you know, you could not move him. He was a rock. Just a few of his decisions, I can't get time to get into it, because this chapter is about his road to 48, his road to decision to establish a state. But bringing in 835,000 Jews from Arab states, uh, the country was broke. It lost 1% of its population in the war. I mean, we think that's over 3 million Americans, to put this in American terms, today. Uh, he accepted German reparations because the country was broke, and people said uh, you're dealing with the devil, including Begin, which we'll get to. He said, uh, you know, and then there was the whole idea of the, declaring the state itself against all odds. And the big, big the biggest day of his his career was that two days before the state, when he gets all the bad news: Charette coming back from George Marshall and saying, you know, I, I won World War II, you know, you didn't, and uh, your generals are intoxicated, I feel, because they've opened the siege to Jerusalem. Doesn't mean they're going to win the war. And he tried to argue with Charette not to declare the state. And Charette came back to Ben Gurion and said, you know, at least agree to a three month extension. He, Charette and Marshall did not agree on a fundamental point, which was Marshall saying, forget a state, let's have an international trusteeship. But that was, Charette was not there. But on the idea of a three month truce, he was there. Um, but at that meeting, uh, Golda Meir comes back from King Abdullah of Jordan and said, yes, I told you we wouldn't join the war, but I can't keep my promise, because now we're a coalition of five. I'm not an independent actor. There's a coalition of five Arab countries. He gets the word in the middle of the meeting, there's been a massacre at Gush Etzion, an Israeli uh, <laughs> you know, settlement, uh, which is actually the West Bank, but was there before 48. Um, he, and then the biggest thing, and each one of these things we talk about a long time, we just don't have time, was that his own generals are saying, Yadin, Galili, it, Maybe it's not such a bad idea to wait for three months. You know, 40% of our people, he said, they don't even have pistols uh, in the army. 40. I mean, it's hard to believe. I mean, Rob talks about Israel's strong self-confidence, which is all true. It's hard to believe 40% didn't even have, have pistols. I said to Gadi Eisenkot, who's here, uh, former IDF chief of staff just recently. And, uh, you know, he, um, it's amazing how far Israel's come from that moment. But this was classic Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion was always, okay. I'll take in all the information, but I'll filter it through a kind of an analytical lens. And his sense was, look, this ceasefire is not going to be applied evenly. Is is the UN or or whoever, they're going to go and monitor the ceasefire in Jordan, in Iraq, in Syria, in Egypt? No, he said they won't. He said our biggest resources are broad, our weapons, our money, our people, our supporters, the potential immigrants. We've been fighting to open these gates. Now we have our moment. Now we have our justification. What justification will we have if we didn't declare the state when the British are leaving in two days? So if it's either it's now or never. So having a sense of timing, I think, was critical. So Ben Gurion was detached, but he was always pushing for decision. And he was unambiguous. But you know, it's not that he ignored others at all. He took it all in. But he had a, an analytical framework, uh, based on his unswerving goal. Now, Begin, where was, what was his greatness? I think he, you know, ba- if Ben-Gurion wanted to end a sense of Jewish homelessness, for Begin, it's to end a sense of, of Jewish victimhood. You know, the Jews will never be victims again. And, uh, he also had a sense that, um, there has to be an equilibrium between values and interests, uh, that he really believed that uh, Zionism had to be, you know, consistent with civil liberties. Uh, he believed that there was martial law in the, in the Arab uh, communities. That's wrong. He said if they're citizens, there can't be martial law in this country. And Begin, I know this is going to surprise 95% of the people here, but uh, you'll you'll read in the cabinet debates uh, we have. I went through hundreds of hundreds of pages in Hebrew of the cabinet uh, transcripts after the 67 war, and the one guy who wanted to give <laughs> The Arabs, the, the Palestinians, he didn't call them Palestinians, he called them RVA, Eretz Israel, the Arabs of the Land of Israel. He said, we have to give them the vote. That was Menachem Begin. It wasn't people to his left, it wasn't people to his right. People thought he was crazy. Uh, But his framework was a 19th century European liberal. And now Lorraine's, the Germans gave the French, you know, citizenship. (laughs) Maybe we could wait for seven years. That was 1967, Begin said that. And he he repeated it in autonomy. He had a very brief period of a honeymoon with Jimmy Carter, and Carter did sense that with him right around the time of his autonomy ideas in December of 77. So Begin had that. Begin, another thing that he had, I think, was a sense that the justice of a cause needed to be subordinate to national unity. There were two key formative moments for, for Begin, the Saison in 44, the Altalena in 48. The Saison was when the there was a sense that Haganah was hunting the Irgun people because of things that were done to the British. And, and some of the Irgun people said to Begin, let's start killing the Haganah people. And he held up a piece of paper and he said, you could have a just cause, but it's a thin line as, as, you know, as this piece of paper between a just cause and a contaminated one. And the Altalena, you all know the story of the ship with the weapons coming in. People wanted to take revenge. Here was, Ben Gurion said right, we got to sink the ship because, as Max Weber said, you know, you can't be sovereign unless you have a monopoly on the use of force. And but Begin there was an of principle too that uh, well, if you were sunk, people said let's let's go after Ben Gurion, let's go back to the underground, let's you know we, we can we start killing some of those the, the, the Haganah or these people. And Begin said no, we're we're not going to fight fellow Jews and. Uh, and I think that really defined him. He had a moment, I think during the German reparations debate where he a little bit veered from it in terms of his at least his statements, not his actions. but I think he was very proud that that whatever the justice of his cause, that these ideological attachments did not overwhelm his sense of of broader commitment to to the to the, the country first then so and then the the only other last points I would say. About Begin is that I think the, the the biographers of the Carter period in the 80s who wrote their by you know wrote their memoirs first, you know they saw Begin as very narrowly defined. He got what he wanted. He got peace with Egypt, but he didn't give enough on the Palestinian issue. And I and I I totally understand their their point of view. But what they didn't see in the 80s was that in 1993 would be Oslo, and that every Israeli leader would be quoting Menachem Begin for accepting the legitimate rights of the Palestinians. And the Palestinian Authority, whether you're in the Likud, whether you're in labor, they all quote Begin. So in the 80s, you couldn't have seen the 90s, but Begin's move on autonomy and accepting legitimate rights of the Palestinians, certainly we could say, it didn't go far enough in terms of 2019, but by setting the template, everyone internally could use Begin for political cover uh, to go forward with the Palestinians. And the last point was just this sense of, you know, this this sense of weighing the risk of action versus the risk of inaction. What I said about Ben-Gurion, that for him, the risk of inaction was missing the moment. And uh, he felt he couldn't miss that moment. The risk of inaction were too great. And I think for Begin too, the risk of inaction, of not giving up the Sinai, you know, his view was there could have been another war with Egypt this could lead to a break with the United States. The risks of inaction were greater. And it, it caused, you know, really clashes against him by his comrades in the Likud. Uh, there were demonstrations against him, everyone like having umbrellas from the Chamberlain. But he was attacked uh, that he betrayed a cause. But he felt when all the this subsides, the achievement of peace will endure. And that, I think, is, is, is the point that we forget, is that peace has endured. It's not the you know the warm peace, but the point is, is look what it survived. It survived the assassination of Anwar Sadat. It survived two intifadas, uh, two wars in Lebanon. It survived the Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt, and no one has been killed uh, in those forty years that we just celebrated early this year on March 26th of the peace treaty, which was in 1979. Now forty years later. So I think Begin uh, deserves some credit. And of course, Anwar Sadat deserves a lot of credit. These are books about Israelis. I hope we do another book on, on heroic Arab leaders, whether it is Sadat, whether it is Hussein, whether it is a guy like Salam Fayyad, or some other key Arabs who have made key decisions. Um, but I think that the, the fact that the peace endures, people forget, what does that mean? In, in the 1970s, 30% of Israel's GDP went to the military. Today, it's about 5%. And if you break that down in in, in, in you know in terms of the GDP, uh, my calculations is that's like $130 billion difference per year because of peace that Israel could put into roads, schools, and clinics. So these people have long force, foresight. And so, but it's this distillation uh, of all these attributes. I, I would go over them again just to, to, to distill them for you. But I just, for the purpose of time, I won't. But I hope I conveyed a sense that these leaders had a sense of foresight uh, of saying, "What is the legacy? Don't always do." I think it was Wilt, uh, I was rereading uh, John F. Kennedy's Profiles in Courage, and we like to see this as kind of a book about Israel's Profiles in Courage. And he quotes Walter Lippman, the great columnist. Kennedy does in 1956, and Kennedy said, "You know, the role of leaders is not to do what's popular; it's to do what's right." And we hope this book conveys a sense that here were leaders who had that sense of political courage and did what's right. Because even if they had some unpopularity at the time, their legacies and their achievements endured.
0: That was David Mikofsky. Next, we'll hear from Ambassador Dennis Ross. Dennis, a former special assistant to President Barack Obama, is the counselor and William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute.
2: Look, I could easily uh, go through uh, the history and the, the biographies of of all four of them. You heard from David talk about both Ben-Gurion uh, and Begin, but we are actually also the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. And so what I want to do is I want to focus a little bit more uh, on, the, on sort of the lessons that you might distill from the past in terms of leadership and then apply it to what is the issue that is facing Israel today not necessarily the issue in the election, which I'll come back to, but the issue that will be facing Israel and that will require leadership. Let me start by just sort of saying the following in terms of the distillation of the key lessons. One thing that typifies all four of these leaders, even though they disagree ideologically, they're not the same ideologically. It's in some ways it's an accident that two represent the could and two represent labor. They're not the same ideologically, but the way they defined the role of being a leader, the role of being prime minister was very similar. Uh, If they if they could have taken the Harry Truman uh, adage of the buck stops here, all four would have accepted that. They operated on a premise. They bore the responsibility of making decisions. Those decisions were up to them to make. They weren't supposed to be deferred. They weren't to be put off to their successors. They would look ahead and they would say, okay, what are the stakes that we're dealing with? What are the priorities that we have to pursue? Even if the decisions we have to take are gonna be costly politically, it's on our shoulders to take them. For them, David made a reference to this, I'll say it slightly differently. All of them understood the cost of action. That was never an issue. What was clear with them, however, is they understood the cost of inaction. And they knew to shirk making a decision was to shirk their responsibility. The responsibility was on their shoulders. Sharon talked about the solitude of the leader. And what he meant by that was, when you face these decisions, you face them alone. All the people who work for you or work with you, yes, you can take their advice, you can take their input, but the burden of decision-making is on you and you face it alone. Each of them felt this. Something else that each of them felt, Rabin was known for, not just assuming responsibility, but if the decision went bad, he took the responsibility. That was true for all of them. That was their natural instinct. Nothing would be deflected to others. In Rabin's case, I'll give, even though I said I wouldn't do anecdotes, I'll give two, because I can't totally resist. One was, when, when the decision was made to do Entebbe, and the planes were in the air, he wrote two different letters. One was a letter to explain what had happened, and the other was to submit his resignation in the event that it went very badly. And the instinct was, okay, whatever happens here, it's on my shoulders. I was in Israel as our negotiator in 1994 uh, when natan and Vaxman was kidnapped. Uh, and I was heavily involved in trying to get the Palestinians to give us any information they knew. turned out the PLO wasn't behind it. Uh, The Israelis found uh, where where he was being held, they conducted an operation and he was killed. Rabin immediately went on on television and he said the responsibility for this was mine, not the military's. This was Rabin. He and Sharon in particular revered the institution of the IDF. What drives much of their decision making, Rabin in response to basically the first intifada, and Sharon when it comes to making the decision on Gaza, they're both heavily influenced by the health and well being of the institution. Again, how they defined leadership, how they defined responsibility. Dahlia made a reference to uh, her father staying in the military, he wanted to be an agronomist. He actually, uh, he got a scholarship to go study uh, water engineering at UC Berkeley. But he stayed to fight in the war. And then he stayed afterwards because he felt, even though, and this is interesting, it's one of the areas where Ben-Gurion looks ahead and Ben-Gurion, as David said, is focused on building a military that is fighting conventional wars Rabin emerges out of the Palmach, and their commando units and he feels too little attention is devoted to them and he feels that Ben-Gurion didn't do what was necessary to prepare everything. He decides he will stay in the military. His responsibility is not to become an agronomist. His responsibility is he owes a debt to all those who died. He says, never have so many owed so much to so few. And his, you know, the what, what drives him, uh, as he says in the military, is to ensure that's never repeated. Sharon is very heavily shaped the same way. They look at the stakes of the country. They have the capacity to look ahead. As I said, they're not afraid to make decisions. You could ask the question: If they were in around now, what would they be seeing? Uh, well, I can tell you, in three of the four cases a preoccupation were in, in, in ensuring that Israel would be a Jewish democratic state. I say three of the four cases. Begin doesn't use the same terminology, but the one thing for Begin, is David said, Begin insists, it may take seven years, but David, Begin insists, if the, if the Arabs are part of the state of Israel, they will have full equal rights. They will be permitted to vote. Now, I, this is significant for today, because if Israel stays on the path it's on, by default, it will become one state for two people. This is not an issue that is being, let's, I'll put it this way, it's, not, it's clearly not in the forefront of the debate going on in Israel right now. There are some people who, who will write about it, but it's not in the forefront of the debate, and there are reasons for it. I mean, if you're an Israeli and you're looking at the region that surrounds you right now, well, what do you see? We see 130,000 Hezbollah rockets. You see the Iranians trying very hard to create precision guidance capabilities for those rockets. You know that Israel is small uh, with a limited number of high value targets, both strategic and economic. A uh, hundred, even tens of thousands of rockets that suddenly have precision capability first will overwhelm uh, any defense that you may have. Yes, Israel has a very effective integrated missile defense but the price of offensive missiles is one-tenth the cost of defensive missiles, and there can be a saturation. So you're focused on how do you deal with, with that threat? Very real, not abstract. Iran building and bedding itself with Shia militias in Syria. Uh, not abstract, quite real. Uh, Iran trying to put rockets into Western Iraq. Again, with capabilities to hit Israel. ISIS in the Sinai. Hamas and Gaza. None of these are abstract. So it's not surprising that the tendency is to focus on those threats. When we talk about one state for two peoples, that is real in terms of affecting Israel's identity over time, but it doesn't measure up to the same immediacy uh, in terms of being tangible. So that's one reason. There's a second reason. Uh, first, there are those who simply deny in Israel that there's a that there's even a demographic problem. Uh, And I will, when you read the last chapter, there's a whole long discussion that deals with this, but I'm going to just give you one example that puts this in perspective. 1986, counting the Jews and Arabs in Gaza, Israel, and the West Bank. The percentage was 63% Jews to 37% Arabs, 1986. Now, 1986 is before Soviet Russian Jews come to Israel. More than a million come in three years. And obviously they have descendants. So today, count the Russians and don't count Gaza. By the way, we don't count Gaza when we look at the demographics because Israel got out of Gaza. You know, for those who say Israel should withdraw, when they withdraw and then you still wanna count them anyway, there's something wrong with that approach. So don't count Gaza. So don't count Gaza, but count the Russians and the ratio today is sixty-one thirty-nine. So the idea that there's not a demographic problem is to ignore reality. Uh, And the reality is even when you're at close to 60-40, you're already one state for two people. Now Israel has a choice to make. If it's one state for two people, either it has one law for everybody or it doesn't. When one state becomes the sole part of the political discourse, when two states can't even be discussed, then the only option you have is one state. And when the only option you have is one state, the one thing you can guarantee is that the Palestinians are going to have a new mantra, and it's going to be one person, one vote. And if you think that BDS was a problem for Israel and its legitimacy, that will be child's play compared to the impact this will have. I describe it as a political freight train that's going to hit Israel. David describes it somewhat more colorfully as the atom bomb. Uh, Either way, Israeli leaders have to make a decision. And the decision isn't, let's go have two states, because two states isn't available anytime soon. The Palestinians are completely divided, not just between Gaza and the West Bank, between Hamas and Fatah. They're not gonna reconcile that anytime soon. That's just a reality. You also have in the West Bank, succession looming. Succession periods are not a time when leaders who are competing become more reasonable. They compete to see who can be more pure, not who can be more accommodating. So two states is not an option anytime soon. The issue is, will Israel preserve the option of separation? When you lose the option of separation, then you lose the ability to have two states maybe 10 or 20 years down the road. When you lose the option of having two states, then one state is the only outcome and then this issue of one state for two peoples that is the issue that comes to the fore now for an israeli leader to make the decision i won't go through all the items because i want you actually to read the concluding chapter the idea here is to build your interest not to tell you everything in the book but i will say there is one item that the israelis have to have to make a decision to do and that's stop building outside of the settlement blocks now, you know There are, uh, on about 5% of the territory, you capture about 85% of all those who live beyond the Green Line. So there is a basis on which to say, okay, since the blocks themselves aren't currently defined, you can take the security barrier and say, no building beyond the security barrier. You have 104,000 Israelis who live beyond the security barrier right now. I can't tell you when the tipping point will come. I can simply tell you it's going to come. And once you've passed it, then you've lost the option. So an Israeli leader needs to make the decision to stop building outside the blocks to preserve that option. That's a hard decision to make politically because obviously the weight of the settler movement is is quite real. But I have a suspicion somehow if these leaders were around today, they would identify here is a fundamental challenge to the future identity of Israel, its character and who and what it's going to be. And everything about them, everything they did, everything you see when we describe who they were, how they evolved over time, what the nature of their journey was, and how they faced up the decisions, and how they never lied to themselves. They understood what had to be done, and they never shied away from doing it. And that, we hope, will be a lesson for the future. Last thing I will say is, the book opens with Sharon and me having lunch. And Sharon says to me, all my successors are politicians. And what he means by that is, they'll only make political decisions. And so, not that we're suggesting that's true, but in the concluding chapter, we also outline what the United States could do to make it politically easier to make the hard decisions that we outline in the final chapter. But, of course, you'll read the final chapter to find out what that is.
0: This has been Neary's Policycast from the Washington Institute. Production assistance this week from Corey Francis. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute.org and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Near East PolicyCast.